clap. Okay. And that's how Zion and Liv gave each other the clap. That's how it's done, ladies and gentlemen. All electronic. All. We're PhDs. We know how this works. Yeah, yeah. Just you just think about that while you're in your cubicle. So, welcome back. It's not only another session of PhD Divas, it is also another season. Season two. Zion. Yay! Zion and I have been doing this for a whole year. Can you believe it? That's. Yeah, I. I can't even believe it. <laughs> no. Like, no. I think that, like, we were talking about, like, getting the second season but even then it took me a surprise that um of course our last week's episode for our listeners uh, about sexual assault was the beginning of the season and even then i was like oh my god season two has arrived yeah so, yeah it, we, this has been an exciting journey doing a podcast exploring the podcast world zine i've said this to you before but you're like the longest relationship i've had in a while yay. so <laughs> So take that for whatever it might mean. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll yeah, let's hold it close let's... to me like a little baby bird. Like a okay. All right. You know they have diseases. Baby birds have diseases. Like what? I don't. Just don't let them. They have stuff that they can give you. Listen, I think that is basically what I'm saying is that we need to get like. Some PhD who studies birds, psychology, and like bird stuff, zoology. <laughs> well, wait, there's a lot of ornithology and, on campus, or and, even like Katie is a vet in vet school now. Fine, and we get them to talk about this so that you don't walk around hugging every bird you see. Because that's a, I was just and talking metaphorically. Our relationship were a bird, I'd hug it, and yet you think it could also like give. A, Give it me a disease. So, like, what's happening off to this the metaphor? Street, yes. What's happening to the metaphor here? I think you should stop thinking in terms of metaphors. And then there's an equation here that makes a lot more sense. It's okay. What many things I talk about metaphorically, I wouldn't do in real life. But that's any sort of consolation. Mm. Yeah, that's deeper. That's a deeper philosophy. Anyway, but I think that baby birds are sort of appropriate because it's spring. Really? It's mm-hmm. spring break. Yeah, and we're gonna be talking Cutting about spring season cleaning. is over. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's over. It's time to uh, get off the couch and stop Netflixing and chilling, and go out there and get active. Oh wait, no, really? that's not. No. That's no, not what I mean. Never, I I really, I meant like go to the gym. I didn't mean like get active. So it's springtime. People can balance Netflix and chill with going to the gym. I believe in people's abilities to do that. They might even be related, actually. They are linked. But anyways, I, I'm sorry. Um, you actually had a point you were trying to make. Why don't you uh, try that again? It's spring, which is a time of renewal. Mm-hmm. But also, um, in the academic worlds, it's not the cheeriest time. So for our listeners who may not be as aware about the academic job market calendar... For everyone who's been applying for jobs and postdocs and fellowships mm-hmm. in the fall and through the winter, it's like, you know, through February, March, except April, that's when people are hearing rejections and yeah. our people... lives are more comprised of far more rejections than they are of acceptances. 
Um, I think that one thing I've been seeing, I think, in Inside Higher Ed and Chronicle and so forth, is that people have been talking about, instead of just talking about CVs, so lists of all our accomplishments, but of un-CVs, like what would it look like if you listed all the rejections Ooh. we've gotten? That's um, deep. That's yeah. painful. And it's, it's hard because on the one hand, like, I, I really like the idea, but I also feel like people who are in the position to share their sort of um, on CV when I've read these articles are usually people who are in the position to be able to share their failures because mm. they're already in a place of success. Like, I feel like if someone is ready with tenure, then, then they could be like, well, like this article got rejected a dozen times before it got accepted, or like my book manuscript got rejected 15 times before it got re um, accepted or something yeah. like that. But, yeah, I've been dealing with rejection my yeah. my whole life. Let's, you know, I was, I, that just made me think about um, high school. So I graduated from the Mississippi, Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science. And what you need to know about this school is just that it's a residential public high school, juniors and seniors are there. And basically it's like the best people in the state who applied. The best oh, people okay. in the state are in the same building. And so, whereas my first high school was a question of whether you're going to college, and this school, you're more so asking, like, which one are you going to? Like, which Ivy are you going to go to? So everyone's applying to all the top schools. Mm -hmm. And you, it's very frequent to walk down the hallways and people are kind of saying, oh, like, oh, I just got, um, like, in 1600 on my SAT or something. And at the time, the highest score was a 1600 or you're, you're talking about your scores but one thing we used to actually do was when admissions like uh, acceptance letters came around you would actually put your acceptance letters or your rejection letters on your door mm -hmm. so you could like walk around it wasn't it wasn't a bad thing for me I don't know if people uh -huh. other people had an adverse experience to it um but you know like whoever you apply once you started getting those letters you would just like tape it outside your door Stressful. Um, well, people put their acceptance, their rejections as well. Oh, okay. So, so I put my open. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I. This could be how I interpreted it, but it wasn't negative at all to me. It was more like, you know, like awesome, congratulations. Um, I put my rejections up as well, but it, it made me think about how like this is, and this is what we're talking about. Like this is a season of acceptance and rejection and. And in this podcast, we'll hopefully we'll talk about some of our experiences with, re with rejection and how do you deal with it, um, what does it really mean, especially when other people are judging you. Um, and then there's a cyclical process to this, right, because it happens every year. And mm -hmm. it feels, it often feels like an individual success or failure. And what's interesting about it is because it happens the same time every year, everyone's experiencing it at the same time. So there's this individual level of acceptance or rejection, but there's also like this community level, right? So I mm -hmm. can win something and my friend who lives right next to me could not win it. And, and what does that do in terms of the community and like morale and, and other things? Yeah, I think it's such a mixed thing. And it's really interesting because again, on my Facebook, I'm seeing such a, a mixed bag of like NEH grants are going out, NSF mm -hmm. grants are going out, med yes. school, grad school, mm -hmm. even like my undergrad friends who are sophomores saying like, oh, this is when I got rejected from my dream school this past year or something like that. Yeah. But, and 
there's so many different types of acceptances and rejections and it's so hard not to internalize them as being mm-hmm. intrinsic to who we are and I think mm-hmm. that that's something that we need to talk about quite a bit I think that in our podcast we've talked a lot about like how graduate school could be really rocky and the way that we should redefine thinking about success and failure but I think this is also another really real part of part of the process that our our academic careers will be filled with rejection for every success it necessarily comes at the cost of x number of uh, article rejections or fellowship Mm -hmm. rejections or so forth and somehow we have to keep on going but at the same time for those of us who've been with us on this journey for a while like we're talking about the academic job market and so forth there's you've put so much energy into all these applications so much time so much research even though you know that it's not you it's very hard not to not to internalize it it's so hard not to internalize it when you see people celebrating their accomplishments or like the graduate school or something like announcing like very proud like oh our new fellows or are these mm-hmm. people or something like that um or the people who post on facebook like you know the people who managed to win the weird combination of meritocracy plus lottery that is getting a tenure track job versus like so so the majority by far are people i know for whom like the future is still completely uncertain and it's absolutely terrifying and even if you're one of the lucky ones or survivor like again how do you deal with community aspect as liz brought up as something we yeah so why don't you um for those who don't know why don't you talk about the english process like what is it really like what is the climate like and for people who don't know so um some of this will be repeating from our earlier um, episode but again for scholars literature not just in english but in any language according to the modern language association this is the worst year on the job market in the past 40 years worse than post 2008 recession and they've only been recording this for 40 years. So, wow. yeah, this is in no way reflective of all the many excellent people that I know at Cornell and all my peer institutions, all my friends across a couple different countries. It's just, that's how rough the market is. On top of that, um, for example, for postdocs in the US, humanities postdocs are incredibly competitive because it's not just about people who are post PhD or ABD applying for them. It's also tenure track professors rather than applying for junior grants the way that they might say in Canada or perhaps up in other fields. Instead, tenure track professors are applying to the same postdocs that PhDs are. Um, and so, for example, there's one really prestigious postdoc through print at Princeton. That I think pays something like 80 or 90 K a year. Wow. You're only la- yeah, you're only allowed to apply for it once. Uh, I haven't applied for it yet. And I heard through the grapevine that, that the two positions I went to. So also it's not like one, a single lab or one department. This is two positions in any field of the humanities. So first of all, think mm-hmm. of the fact that it's not just about PhDs in English. It's PhDs in history, French, German, Italian, uh, so, um, science and technology studies, classics, philosophy. All of them plus people who are adjuncting, plus people who are visiting persistent professors, plus people who are already tenure track applying for this job, for these two positions. And uh, from the grapevine, I heard that the two positions, one went to someone who's already a professor, and two was someone who already is a postdoc. So it's even harder to compete with that 
Yeah. And to get established, to even get started on your journey. Yeah, and so, like, there's this thing that even if you're trying not to internalize rejection, even as you're trying to put it into a positive to see what does success look like, let me see who managed to be successful this year and look at what their track records are like. Instead, it sort of looks like accumulation of of successes upon successes as opposed to the rejections that most most of us are facing. So it's really hard not to also internalize that as a seemingly objective measure of what it takes to succeed in this profession. Yeah, I can I can definitely agree with you on how sometimes things can seem very objective. So as you mentioned before, the um, NSF, National Science Foundation, um, GRFP, so Graduate Research Fellowship, yeah, um, decisions came out. And I have personally found that it's a very, I think it's a very stressful day because there are going to be people who win, obviously, and there are also people who lose, and you want to be with both of them. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually did not get this app. I did not win um, NSF, and I actually still have my NSF rejection feedback. So they have a committee. You get at least three recommenders or three people if you had more that means people were arguing about your application and they had to bring in someone else but usually it's just three and they actually send you the comments back and uh you know they they are they can be cutting i think mine said and i think it's also noteworthy that i remember it even though it's been about four or five years but mine just said you're okay, but you're, compared to everyone else, you're just not as impressive as the other candidates are. Uh-huh. And so they say sort of things like that, or um, I think it can be very hard to internalize, I mean, hard to digest that information. But one of the other things that I've noticed about NSF Day, is what I call it, jokingly, uh-huh. is... Um, how it can really make or break friendships or clap unions of students. Mm-hmm. So if you have a cohort of people that apply, you know, if usually what happens, there's this big separation on NSF day because people who didn't win start to look at the people who did win and then start judging, like comparing themselves and start trying to gauge why someone else got it versus them. Mm-hmm. And they start to the rumor mill starts like, oh, like this person isn't even qualified or this person had someone else write their essays for them or this person had this help or this person only got it because they're a minority or I didn't get it because I'm not a minority, right? And so I've heard all of these things and uh, they're really minimizing to the candidate and also just hard in terms of community. You can't walk around and I guess this is my pet peeve coming up, but it's really hurtful to me personally when I see people bash each other so much when you were friends the the day before and now you're having doubts about someone's actual intellect because they won an award that you didn't win. And also, on the same logic, most people assume that I have won NSF because they're like, she's just a successful black person. How could she not have NSF? (laughs) Um, yeah, people are very surprised. I'm like, no, I didn't get it. Why did you think I did? And then they get all awkward and walk away because, yeah. 
but it was a very hard day, um, both personally, again, as I'm mentioning, and in terms of the social dynamics that you have. And uh, people get a little, little racist and sexist on uh, application days, acceptance wow. days. Yeah, Do you not I see things like that happening? Um, have you yeah, ever? Yeah, I don't know. I was going to say that I don't really see that aspect coming through. I mean... I mean, I, I imagine that it could definitely be the case for, uh, like, positions and um, different types of race studies or, or stuff like that. Unfortunately, I haven't been privy at all if there has been that type of discussion. But I can speak to what you're talking about. Like, that, I feel like there is this sort of feeling, especially among people who are not yet on the job market or don't have to go on the fellowships, and they're trying to look at what does, what does it look like to be successful in this program? And I feel like that's... a viewpoint that a lot of us have when we start it's like oh we're gonna look at when we look at to other people further along what does success look like and so then of course pe people we gravitate to those people who have this type of quantifiable legible success in terms of fellowships and we're like oh there must be something right at them like it's somehow a reflection of of their worth and then when yeah. we know that people haven't gone things like like I feel like I've still been guilty of it even though I know how difficult the job market is it's like oh no but what what's wrong like what went wrong and sometimes that also translates to the mentality, like sort of how, what you're saying, it becomes, it sort of becomes a sort of stigma. Um, it's, a, it's really, really perverse. Um, what you're saying about NSF comments, I think that this is probably very true for a lot of academics. Um, I think it's a the sort of joke that I think maybe even like um, the, the joke account like um, academic says, mm -hmm. yeah. Where it's like, you know, reviewer B must be stopped. Like the joke being that like whenever you submit for anything, mm -hmm. you're going to get the first set of comments. It's probably like going to be positive. Even like, you're like, yes, we should accept this paper. And the second will be like, this was terrible. And it yeah. seemed like they didn't really like listen to what you said or like completely rip you apart. Why didn't you cite them? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely like, so the part of the other side of the culture, I really appreciate that I do have friends who all on the spectrum from undergrad through established professors who will like talk about like even who's tenured and say like I got these devastating comments and like it just ruined me for a couple of weeks mm -hmm. and so it does it does help me to hear that from people who are more established even though perhaps again it's because they are in a place of being more established that they have enough success to seemingly um, offweigh the possible possible stigmatization of, of the failure also, I'd say that maybe what's a little bit different for the humanities in the U.S., of course, is that um, we don't really have NSF grants mm -hmm. for the humanities, or like equivalent NSF, of course, because we're in Pulp National Science Foundation. Um, but because of that, there's not as much a, a culture of applying for, for fellowships in quite the same way. Like, they do exist, but it's not as part of the community, the way that the NSF grant seems to be that I've seen for like... All my all my stem friends on the other hand in canada and i've been f fortunate in this regard like we do have the equivalent of nsf grants for the humanities the social um, short grants which are social sciences and humanities research council of canada grants and you can get them for masters a phd and postdoc levels and yeah and circ is the um, stem equivalent so okay. basically shirk is the social science and humanities one okay and so, like, there is quite a culture of that because actually the norm at a lot of Canadian schools is that you have to apply, you have to at least put together an application in order to get 
uh, for shirk funding in order to get your normal stipends. So it like sort of fixes into the structure of the program that you have to be is kind of uh, competitive. So it has both its positive and negatives. On the one hand, I've heard friends talk a lot about sort of that type of fellowship and shirk shirk culture because everyone comes so fixated at the deadlines at the beginning of fall and like people again reputations are made and ruined and friendships made and broken. But at the same time, it also I think it trains people in a way that. I don't think we have as much in the humanities in the states. Like I, I've been again fortunate to get these type of type of grants, but we don't have as much like departmental or field specific support for grants because, again, there's not really a culture of people applying for a humanities program. So if we look to the graduate school, it's usually people are doing insert, uh, yes, NSF grants rather. Yeah. And so I've actually gone to like, how do you apply for fellowship stuff? And it'd be like, it's all the science people. And we'll just be sitting there like, oh, what do you do if you want to talk about literature? Mm. Um, yeah. And even then, I, I've noticed that it, it can be, it's very um, community specific, which is just to say that I've been at institutions or I've heard of grad students where it's not a big deal whether they apply to a fellowship or not. So they're, Students aren't being pushed to get external funding because their PIs, it's it, it's um, a known thing. Like, oh, I'm going to take care of your funding so you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So it's not like your life is like livelihood is literally on the line. Yeah. The same way. Or they're not pushing you to always apply to different fellowships. So that definitely is, depends on where you are, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Because yeah, there are some communities where if you didn't get a fellowship, you're kind of seeing like something was wrong with you. And there are other places where, you know, if you didn't get a fellowship, like, who cares? Like, you, you probably are the only one who applied anyway in that school. Like, some places it's just not that important. And I think that the importance that people, and by people I mean, like, the community place on whether you can win a fellowship definitely does affect the stress level or how you feel about being rejected by that fellowship. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Whereas sort of the funny thing is, I think that it's the case for a lot of Canadians in the US is that when we do get NSERC or SHRC, because it's not like as name brand recognition as Mellon or NSF for people who are US based, mm -hmm. people are just sort of like, they sort of just like shrug like, eh, so what's the big deal? Mm. <laughs> it's like, okay. But I was like, I did, I brought in funding, people, I brought in funding. But in the way, in, in a way, perhaps it's like better that way. So it's not like I can, my ego can be that inflated. Hmm. I was also going to say like, so another part of rejection again is academic job market stuff. And so it's not even like there's different waves of rejection. There could be the wave from like everything that getting rejected from initial round, say back in the fall to getting to the interview or Skype or phone interview phase. Yeah. And then getting rejected from that phase. And then even getting to the campus phase and then you get rejected as well. Like, and you get so in emotionally invested, mm -hmm. you don't do so much work at every single stage. And also what makes me a little bit indignant is like, sometimes you could even get to say like, the stage where you've had a Skype interview and then you also met them in person and you flew to another country, well to another, city and met, met with them and then like you never hear from them like you don't even get a rejection so that's kind of frustrating yeah it's like it if rude. academia 
had a, had an iPhone or a cell phone and you met them through Tinder and you just let it peter out. You're like, I'm not going to break up with them. I'm just going to like let the silence do it for me. I know. They just they just got ghosted. You know, we totally got like an academic rejection via ghosting. Yeah. I remember hearing from one friend that like he was like got a rejection for something like in June mm-hmm. and he's like, "Well, I already knew that I was rejected at that point, but just in case he didn't um, you know, it wasn't clear enough." Or I've heard that some friends like getting multiple rejections for the same job and sort of just being like, "I got got it the first time. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for reminding me of of the rejection." And even within rejections, there could be su- there's such a range because I have to say that there's been some rejections that I've received that have been really wonderfully worded, that have been really encouraging, that have been really frank about how difficult it was because they had so many candidates and that they realized that the the academic job market or the postdoc market is absurd. Mm-hmm. And so just taking the time to acknowledge like you are, you know, we are human beings and you are also a human being and we validate you as opposed to like the form form email. There's this notorious thing that happened, I think, on one of the academic job wikis, and it's not not in liter- literature, but in, I think, another humanities field, where I heard that the rejection got, like, sent through the, the HR department, so instead everyone got mass emailed the rejection saying, like, your application has been rejected, and that goes it. Wow. And people were upset, and people started posting on the wiki, and apparently people's advisors started, like, saying, like, this is a so, this is so rude, like, I have a poor opinion of this department now etc etc obviously emotions get really high because um like we can't emphasize enough that these things are not trivial these are people's careers livelihoods at stake this is about where you're going to live this is where you could have a family or means something about your relationship it means rent it just there's just so much on the line it's hard not to let emotions get high in these instances yeah and obviously when you when you get the failure letters what do you do because usually when you get accepted that's like a green light right that's like go that means what I'm doing is good it means that what I'm doing someone thought was acceptable and so you kind of feel like you're on the right track but then rejection doesn't necessarily mean that you're not on the right track right and it's much more it's much harder to interpret how to bounce back from a rejection because it could be that you need to try a different av- take your talent to a different avenue, or it could mean that I need to actually revamp my story because I didn't or interpret it, mean, it right. And yeah. so it's just so ambiguous, and then it, it's easy to like give up because you don't know what and to I'd do. Say, like, it's not as clear the as the green light like, of acceptance. Yeah, or like the politics of the circumstance or something that you can't even see that has nothing to do with you whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So you just don't know. Yeah. And I think maybe that's even an interesting thing to think through. How do you decide when, how do you distinguish when um, the the rejection isn't about you versus always thinking the rejection isn't about you and never learning from it? That's true. Or, uh, of course, the flip side that you think it's all about you all the time. So you keep on trying to change yourself, but really, it becomes cyclical. Because I do think that both of them are important in the process. and But you don't want to give up prematurely either. It's sort of weird because, again, having been through the whole academic job and postdoc process, I feel like I both have and haven't learned things at the same time. Yeah. So we're talking about this balance. Like, on the one hand, I feel like I have learned things, 
and like I think the very experience of going through it is really important because there's something about enduring it mm -hmm. that looking at a timeline a calendar of what the work is like will never translate to being the actual experience mm. it's never going to yeah. be like the actual time and emotions the exhaustion you know the sleeplessness that goes on, it goes into it at the same time again like they, there seem to be so many factors that are beyond my control and in some cases i've been privileged enough that processes were transparent enough that i could see sort of like what the politics were at play behind different things or like knowing where if someone got this particular thing it's like oh that is like oh for this postdoc people weren't even interested in getting it from english that year so it doesn't really matter it had nothing to do with me so in some cases like like what do i learn from it because obviously like my application was successful for a bunch of places but then it wasn't for a bunch of others but what exactly it's like you have to just keep on trying so many things like one thing i've heard quite a bit is because the market is so saturated now a lot of search committees won't even look at people who are abd or just phd mm -hmm. and so the your application is just automatically tossed out it doesn't matter how good the actual writing is you have to just be at a certain stage and so you can't really control that yeah. one particularly prestigious job in my field i heard um they brought an unprecedented number of people for campus visits. Like usually you do like three or four people mm -hmm. at most at campuses, they brought 10. And almost all those people were ready professors. Wow. So yeah, it's just like, what do you learn from that? You learn what the lay of the land is like, you know, learn about the topography of privilege and the job market is, but what can you do about it yourself? Do you change something about Especially yourself? Especially if you're not already you can't really do anything. how do you compete with I know, that? I know. You literally can't compete with that. Yeah. And so it's actually been really useful. I'm really happy that um, I have had friends who managed to be, be tenure track, which is amazing. And and it's so exciting. And they're, they are wonderful people. But then there's also equally wonderful people who didn't get anything. And I don't know, it's just it's so hard balancing between all these emotions and what you want to feel for your friends and how to best support them. Yeah. I think I'm rambling a little yeah. bit. Yeah, how do you support yourself and support your friends? How do you keep your friends? <laughs> yeah. But also do the self-care you need, which is mm -hmm. whether that's like nursing your ego, which is important. I do think that's important, actually. Or, yeah, or trying to be better. I, yeah, it's really difficult. I think that this is one of those things where there actually isn't an answer. It's more of a practice than an actual mm -hmm. final solution. Like you, you oscillate as appropriate and you, and you work through it, but it's never going to be, there's never going to be a day where this is, a, this is um, just a done deal and you kind of have a solution and you know exactly how you're going to respond to rejection or acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I'd also say that it's completely understandable if people want to get the heck out of this crazy system. Yeah. You know, because like it is so punishing and, but it's up to you, like at the same time, it's not like we get a brownie for, for staying in the game, so to speak. Sometimes nope, it's like- Nope, we don't even get cash. I know. It's like, it's a, it's a particular, peculiar type of masochism almost. And I, I, I think it's completely up to people 
um, if they want to continue with it or walk away. And both are equally respectable um, positions to take. I'm just I'd also thinking say about when oh, I was applying for postdocs. Uh-huh. Uh, it was hard. It was an awakening of what the actual system was like and where I fit into the system. It wasn't it wasn't hard, but it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be either. Mm -hmm. And um, when I surveyed the landscape of my friends from multiple institutions, I'm aware that it's not as easy as they thought it was going to be either. And we're STEM people. So, so I think there's, that was like comforting but also very interesting about the market. And I do think that I learned a lot from being rejected. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. it. It didn't make me feel good, but I did learn something that that I'm hoping will be useful for me one day. I mean, the, the verdict is still out. I still have to go through the system. Like I saw, I'm in my postdoc and I need to make these two years count. Mm -hmm. I was struck by your earlier image of the way that we oscillating through through our feelings about rejection mm -hmm. and I think that's a good way to put it because on the one hand like what if people were had a definitive response to rejection that would be bizarre first of all of course mm -hmm. um, but also I would venture to say that what makes us good academics has to do with a certain type of flexibility personal flexibility and you know it's perhaps a mark of our adaptability as mm -hmm. well that we have such a range of responses and we need to acknowledge that as being a part of who we are as academics that we shouldn't disavow. Um, we shouldn't think of it as being like our weaker human self. This is perhaps even a part of what makes us good as flexible thinkers. Like it's, yeah. again, like, you know, this flexibility towards how we view ourselves and the world and the way that our ideas can change, but also mean that um, we have the potential to develop intellectually and personally at the same time. Yeah. As much a consolation as that could possibly be, that is. Yeah. Sometimes it's a, it's a But you know what? I think this, this also just reflects my general, um, it's the inner pessimism in me that I don't think people realize that I am. Well, maybe pessimism isn't the right word, but it definitely isn't like, oh, the world's all going to be fine. Because a part of me just accepts rejection as like, all right, that was horrible. I didn't do well. That's just what's going to happen. That's just what it is. <laughs> there's, there's, that's kind of how I respond. Like there are these times where I get rejection or I get bad news. I'm like, well, of course that was going to happen. Of course. And then I just kind of like sit in it. And then I'm like, all right, I think I'm ready to try getting up now. And then when something bad happens, like, yep, that happened. Okay. <laughs> so so there's this Keep part of me that's like, it's inevitable. It is bound to happen. And I don't and I don't know. I think that is my fight. That's how I get back up. 
but it doesn't actually look like I'm trying to get back up. I like I just don't think I always need to be up. Yeah. I feel like the way that I go about it is something similar, which is that, you know, even though I might hope for the best, I always expect the worst. Mm. But also I think that the I've internalized a bit of a negative mentality then because I so anticipate the worst happening that even when good things happen to me, I find it very hard to be happy because then I am always anticipating the next bad thing mm. or next rejection. Or like, oh, this is a great success. I should be happy. But I still know that like there's so many more devastating things to come. Yeah, yeah I used to be a lot like that. You just made me, it's just like you just brought this very vivid memory for me where I was um, uh, um, like a very shining example of this was when I was in high school. I know I keep going back to high school. They were not mm -hmm. my, I mean, they were great days, but they weren't the best days of my life. Like, But the point of the story is that um, I did very well in high school. Again, I went to this boarding school. It was, let's just say it's like the top school in Mississippi. And it's even within the top 500 in the U.S., like, period, high schools. Mm. And there I am on graduation day. All the families are there. And they give out five awards, like, five big awards on that day. And I took home four of them. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I took home. I won um, the Veil Athene Award they give to the best student they have there, sort of, yeah. basically. Um, like the person who espouses everything, like the only one person gets that award and I got, um, uh, and also I, I won the Chris Reed short story essay award. I won like, and that was like voted on by an, an external committee. Like I won this award. Actually that was in the, that's like um, the essay from the Southern Voices. And then I got a Spirit Award, and I got um, some other award, and I sang the I wrote and sang the class song, so I basically lived on the stage. I was there, like that was that was it. And um, the other crazy thing, I was also prom queen, and I was like Miss MSMS. Oh my God, and, so it was this weird kind of. Um, I went from just like doing my thing, like just being who I was. I was also like, I was this captain of my soccer team. I think I won like, I just won everything. Like I was just kind of golden. And the thing is, the reason why I'm bringing this up isn't to say like, hey, I'm awesome. I won those things. But to say that the way I felt at that moment wasn't, I'm awesome. I won all those things. It was something bad's going to happen. It's going to go away. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what I remember. I just remember how jarring that felt to literally, like, not even give myself the hour of yeah, literally, like, totally my hands are that. full of all these plaques that have my name on it. My name is in this school in that, like, you know, like, sometimes they get the, they have the plaques and they have, like, all the years, like, you know, 2000s, whatever. Like, like, my name is in that school. And unless it burns down, my name is always going to be like in all of those plaques and I couldn't even give myself like a minute to be like I'm fucking awesome um mm -hmm. like that that feeling of like I was that wasn't success something's gonna happen someone did something 
gave it to me. Yeah, and I think that for me started actually this long journey of trying to allow myself to admit when I did something well, if to no one else but to myself. But yeah, that that was kind of like when I was like, you have a problem. You can't get any better like th- for at that time, for that moment, you know? It was like a very poignant moment in my life that I remember not even being able to be happy about that. Yeah, I understand. I feel like it's sort of this addiction that once we get a bunch of the awards for this year, then I'm always like, well, will I be able to do the same amount or better for next year? Or like, you know, it just becomes this, like you keep on chasing like that brief high of being happy, but then like because of that, you become so stressed out thinking about, again, what future failure might be around the corner or how do you replicate the success? Yeah. Replication, that's important because, yeah, it's hard because you, you... Reproducibility. Yeah. <laughs> or the studies. Yeah. Especially if things get harder and you you don't take into account like the adjustment period that you have if you're doing anything new and you expect it to be easy. You expect it to be like clockwork the way what you used to do was. And this is just different. I'm trying to think about, I'm trying to think, have I gotten better with rejection? Like what has changed with me with about rejection? Because it certainly happens. <laughs> I think I've faced way more rejection than I've ever faced in my life. Um, and I know I will face more rejection because I think that's just what life does to you. So, but yeah. I don't feel I critically I, crushed I right now. I don't think I do. You, you do feel I don't crushed, think don't I feel crushed. crushed. That's good. I'm trying to, but I'm, I'm not, but I'm trying to think why. What is it that we kind of develop or sustain when we face rejection that prevents us from being ultimately utterly crushed? I think, well, I think to to answer your question, the answer is perhaps a popular buzzword right now, which is resilience. Mm-hmm. That's very popular in, in psych. Yeah, it pisses me off. Terms. I know, it annoys me too. Like, it's become like, I've heard it compared that the previous generation, the word was self-esteem, and now it's resilience hmm, for ours. Um, and you can see how that, I could see how that's the case. Like, the out of psychology research, like, this, someone pounces on something that sounds catchy and now trying to reproduce it on a mass scale, but perhaps having a lot of the same pitfalls. So on the one hand, like, it could be argued, like, oh, we're successful because we're resilient, but I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, or having grit. Yeah. Yeah, grit is another one that really annoys me because I think it ends up reinscribing these ideas of like, inherent worth and meritocracy. And also the idea that big girls don't cry. You know, like, um, mm-hmm. so if you want to be successful, don't complain ever. Don't, uh, don't feel bad about things. Don't get down. That's really what it's kind of saying. Like, there's a way in which if you oversubscribe to this resilience, grit mentality, you lose your humanity. Mm-hmm. And you also lose yes. the ability to see humanity in other people as well. Right? So, like, if you see me be upset about not getting NSF, as an example, um, 
you know, like that's just one moment. That's not like the whole world changing. That's not me giving up on life or something. That's me just like admitting that I failed in this one instance for this one particular measurement. And let me also just say, I, I call, I, I look at awards and things now as measurements. It's sort of, and I think it's, it's whole strategy for me is that I try to distance myself from what I am being judged for so that I'm, I'm always trying to be aware of the fact that when I apply for something, they're not actually judging me as a human being, like as, as someone who knows and actually cares about me. They're judging what I wrote and how well it fits their criteria based on how they felt at their time. It's like a measurement. It's like when I, I think of it the same way I would if I went into lab and, um, and I did an experiment. Well, what was the temperature? What was the, how accurate were the pipettes? Have they been calibrated? You know, like all that stuff will affect your measurement or how well your instrument works which affects what results you get. And it's the same way, you know, did I write something that was really useful at the time? Are they looking for someone who has something that I wrote? How do the people who measure it feel? Like how do the, um, um, the reviewers feel? Because I could very easily get that one reviewer who doesn't like it, or I could get the ones who do. I could get the ones who like the broader impacts that I wrote about, and I could get other ones who don't think broader impacts are, they're like a piece of crap, and they'd rather hear more science. And so by me, by doing that kind of distancing, it, one, allows me or makes me focus on being more objective about what I'm trying to measure. And the other part is I try not, it helps me not feel like I was personally attacked when I don't get something. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, um, I think that putting it in the language of science is really helpful. And for the humanities people, I'd put similarly like, that if so much of our work, of what we do is to question how contingent truth is or various types of truths, likewise, the same sort of thing goes for these measures, so-called, like, for these prizes or measures of success, these jobs and so forth. It's not like we ourselves are somehow separate from these dubious well, what we understand in our studies to be these, you know, these factors that are so contingent on on things that are outside the control of individual and have more to do with systems than anything yeah. else. But it's very hard to, it's very hard to make that feel like an emotional reality, I think. Because it's so important not to get down when you get rejected. If for nothing else, that if you get, if you are down when you're rejected, if you start to really let that affect your the way you view your actual potential, you stop applying to things. And if there's nothing that I've yeah. learned, or if there's one thing I've learned, is that you will never get anything that you never apply for. And having been yeah. on, I mean, I've said this before, but having been on some admissions committees, you know, like you, you don't get the diversity of the candidates you want because people aren't applying for them. And they can't, you can't hire someone, you can't, you can't select someone who never applies. You have to mm -hmm. apply. You have to put yourself out there. And you have to be willing to keep trying. And I would say that I think yeah. people who are successful tend to just keep applying to things. Always nominating themselves for things. 
because something yeah. will land eventually. But if you're so depressed by one award that you don't apply for others, then, you know, you're not going to get anything. Success begets success, which sort of parallels how privilege begets privilege, which I think is also right. hard. I really need to look up if the actual give... link for this guy, but it was a um, computer science professor at Harvard who was trying to be transparent about his hiring process. And the one thing I remember that he said, oh, right, I heard about this, he, yeah. he said that he noticed that the only people who were applying to this faculty position at Harvard were people who had at one point or another in their academic trajectory been at Harvard or MIT. And he was then concerned that he wasn't even getting the best talent because people were kind of self-selecting. So they're thinking to themselves, mm. I'm not going to waste my time applying to Harvard. They're never going to look at me. They're not the guy, I'm not the kind of person they want. So they weren't applying. And then now they're just getting all this inbreeding because people who apply are a certain breed, right? They have already been through Harvard or MIT at some point, And therefore they think they're going to be qualified. But you're not bringing in any new thought. And that was just yes. an interesting thing yeah. to think about, like, some often people think about it from the side of applying and they think that I'm not going to waste my time applying. And then there's this other part of people, they want to see that diversity and they don't see it. But we really shouldn't, like, you just, we shouldn't sell ourselves short. Rejection hurts. It sucks. That's true. But we still can't not apply. I'd, I'd like to give a, a personal experience. Um, I tried to yeah. think of like, Something that's encouraging. So the first time I applied for the Sherp Doctoral Fellowship, I didn't mm -hmm. get it. Um, but then when I applied it again, I got it. So my, my project both times were was so vastly... Were, my projects were so vastly mm -hmm. different. Completely different eras, like completely different literature. Everything about it was different. And I think there's no... And I think that what I ended up with is a far better project than if I had got, gotten accepted mm -hmm. the first time. Like the rejection did... It forced... It was... It was hard because like I put so much work into it and I organized so much of my thinking and like what classes I thought I was going to take and things mm -hmm. like that around like what would that be like to support this project but then knowing that like is this project not viable maybe it isn't and then having to discard it and then feeling lost actually for a couple of years of I have to try and figure out another project and that's really really hard to sort of like have this macro view of something when you don't even have like anything on the micro level yeah, so to speak yeah. but it did it did force me to to develop um my thinking in ways i think that made it more rigorous and what's funny is that even then even though like i did get that fellowship that project ends up looking very different than my dissertation <laughs> <laughs> even then mm -hmm. you know like it's just it looks different like it's, it's sort of like the way that there's this evolution between the essay that i used to to get into graduate school that I said I would be my mm -hmm. project versus the fellowship that failed versus the fellowship that got it versus my prospectus, mm -hmm. which is completely different versus what my dissertation actually became. And even now as I'm revising my dissertation, having defended, I even have a different view on it again. Um, so it is part of this painful, very personal pro process of, of my research as well as myself evolving. Yeah. Yeah. I'd also say that there was a there was a weird plus actually um, in the initial rejection, which was which I didn't even realize at the time. But if I had gotten the fellowship from the beginning, I would have actually 
had less teaching experience than I do now because I would have had a bunch of I'd had fellowship in a number of mm-hmm. years and I would have lost out in a couple of years of teaching to build up my CV and build up that mm. experience. And I actually know some people who came in with that fellowship um, who got it when I didn't, um, when they had applied for it. And that actually ended up like hurting them in some ways, actually, even though it gave them, gave them more time for other things. So it was a unintended, I don't want to say benefit, but, yeah. It's so cheesy. Like, it's hard not to talk in cliches, yeah. but, like, there's... But you bring up a point, somehow, an important like... point to remember, mm-hmm. is that rejection isn't the end. And so there are many paths to success. There are many ways... Success looks like a lot of things. It doesn't always look like ex- like acceptance, 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 um, win this award, win this win, and then you're done, you're set. And I guess I'll use this, like, talk about STEM. You know, sometimes people may think, okay, if I win NSF, I'm golden. I'm going to be great. I'm going to be set up for all these other successes in my career. And they're just going to keep lining up. And so mm-hmm. you can sometimes feel like, well, if you don't win a procedures award in your PhD, that you're not successful. And that's actually not true. Because there are plenty of people I know who actually never won NSF or any major fellowship but still produce a lot of papers and got like into great labs. And and it's just important to remember that um that you can be successful and haven't gone through a different route. I actually mm-hmm. still remember it's not necessarily related to failure itself, but I was having a particularly low moment in undergrad. I was coming to some realities of my reality and this administrator um, actually at the Wine Garden Learning Resource Center at UPenn, we were talking, uh, her name is Pat Thatcher actually, and you know, like I'm like on the verge of tears, but I'm not quite the kind of person that cries in front of people. Like if I'm crying in front of you, that means like shit is horrible. That means that I have no longer any control over any of my motor skills, like whatever skills at, at all. I no longer, I don't know. It's just that that's a very high threshold. Um, the point is, is like I'm sitting there and I'm like, the world is over. And she just kind of says to me, like, you have to be able to accept the fact that your path is going to look different than anybody else's path who's doing it right now. And that was surprisingly, actually, it wasn't like an instant game changer for me, but it was something that kind of kept me going that just had a lot of weight, more weight than I think she thought it was going to have. But, you know, I thought success was going to look like me being a straight-A student in undergrad, me getting all these summer internships, me, like, me just not struggling, (laughs) That's what success looks like, right? That's that's what a physicist looks mm-hmm. like. That's what all the success all the successful people I think I see. That's what they look like, and I just had to to get over that. I had to realize that um, whatever kind of clean cut path it is, that again, if you get the green light, you know that success. Like that's pretty mm-hmm. much you're good. 
But when you don't get that green light, when you get that rejection or that little delay, then how do you interpret that? What does that mean? And I had to realize, well, that doesn't mean I'm just completely done. I'm not out of this fight. And I'm only truly out when I stop trying, not when I've actually reached the rejection. And even now, when I when I face things, I kind of I kind of hear that voice in my head. It's like your path is not going to be like everyone else's. You're making your path every step you take. Every time you decide to, um, every time you decide to keep doing something. It's silly, but it reminds me of. Again, you don't watch anime, but <laughs> you don't watch Harry Potter. Did so you ever good. watch Dragon? I know. Did you ever see Dragon Ball Z, or you know Dragon Ball Z? There's a ball, and the dragon, and somebody. Oh, oh there's seven balls. But anyways, like, like there's there's a lot of these really like muscly guys like chart powering up and sure. beating the crap out of each other, but, um, but part of it is like there's this archetype of that type of hero of that genre, like mm-hmm. called the shonen genre, which really translates to boy, and like, the main character is usually like this, like every guy who's still really talented, but he usually gets the crap beaten mm-hmm. out of him, and. Nonetheless, but he keeps on like keeps on trying, even when the villain is like beating him up and like almost killing him. Sometimes he even dies, but he keeps coming back. But it's just this determination that keeps him getting them to go and mm-hmm. go and go. And I feel that watching a lot of that type of anime when I was younger mm-hmm. and now still watching it, perhaps has been helpful for me because it helped to model a vision of success. You tell the psychologist that like the, you don't have resilience, you have anime. I know, hey. You have Dragon Ball Z Wait, all up what? in your space. Yeah, I'm Goku. Yeah. Well, happy spring. Um, and happy spring. thank you guys for tuning in. If you've been with us for the whole year, thank you so much. It's been such an exciting journey. We learned so much, and we're, I'm really happy that we get to connect with people look forward to doing this more and hopefully doing more live things it's really fun to do yeah we actually have another live show well i think we can try to record ourselves absolutely we're going to be coming back um liz is coming back to cornell again again, uh for this what philosophy 100 class or whatever um a life worth living we'll give you more details but we'll probably be recording that session live uh, we have a whole bunch of other interviews that we're really excited so to schedule many. with other so awesome PhD divas. So many of different pa- careers, different disciplines. They're going to be awesome. You're going to love them as much yeah. as we love them. And thanks so much for your love. Seriously, guys. So please follow us on the socials. That would be Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud, all under PhD divas podcast. If you have a question for us, please send us an email at lizandzine at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us review on yes. iTunes. Subscribe. Review us. Do it. Do it. Do all the socials for us. iTunes. And have a great day or night or whenever you're viewing this. And I hope that if you had spring break or March break, that it was restful. True. That's Take so care true. of yourself. Yeah.